The mutants change everything. Right from the start, SARS-CoV-2 has measured up to the two main criteria of a model pandemic virus. It spreads easily and kills only a small percentage of those infected. However, new mutant forms have produced a new twist in the plot. It comes as no surprise to us that the goalposts have been moved in favor of the virus. Some experts have suggested that the novel coronavirus might adapt to humans over time, gradually becoming more like a common cold virus. It is certainly possible, but we think it unlikely any time in the near future. In fact, the trend is towards the mutations becoming more transmissible and more dangerous, and towards them posing a higher risk of reinfection. At the same time, the vaccines currently available are losing their effectiveness against these mutants. This now also applies to the British B.1.1.7 variant. Recent testing in Bristol and Liverpool has shown that it too carries the E484K mutation, which is present in the South African and Brazilian variants. The fact that mutation makes a virus more deadly does not actually work to its advantage, because survival is not only important for the host, but also for the pathogens. For the latter, it is game over if the host, and thus the virus copying mechanism, perishes too soon. For example, the SARS-CoV-1 pandemic of 2002 and 2003 ended comparatively quickly because that particular virus lacked the capacity to adapt. It was too deadly to spread effectively. SARS-CoV-2 is different. It has conquered the world so quickly and successfully because it is highly transmissible and it kills only several weeks after the host has contracted the disease. During this phase, the virus can acquire new properties as it engages in mortal combat with the immune system. This is what produces the new variants, which then go on to massively displace the forms that were previously in circulation. This is now happening at a breakneck speed in various countries, such as Israel, Portugal, the UK, and the USA. The decisive advantage comes from changes to the spike protein, which enable it to bind better to the host cells, as in the case of the B.1.1.7 variant. Because it has become more infectious, it can now spread more rapidly. This competition between different virus variants is not new. In the last 12 months, the game of natural selection and mutation has repeatedly led to the suppression of individual variants. The original form, D614, which started out in Wuhan, has long since died out. The first recorded displacement was by the G614 variant in Italy. In a detailed study published last October in Nature magazine, scientists at the University of Texas showed how G614 was able to prevail. In experiments on lungs and nasal mucous membranes, the researchers observed that the virus reproduces better than its predecessors in the upper respiratory tract, from where it is more easily transmitted from person to person. In evolutionary terms, G614 has a decisive advantage over previous variants. In June 2020, it was detected in 74% of all samples sequenced worldwide, by which stage it had already become more transmissible than the original Wuhan virus. Since then, the latest variants have gained even more traction. In one of our keynotes last summer, we were already predicting that mutations further down the line would be not only more infectious, but possibly also more dangerous. In the 1970s, the prominent British mathematician Robert May pointed out that viruses can become increasingly deadly rather than increasingly harmless, as we know from previous smallpox, polio, dengue, and measles pandemics. The pathogens that cause them have lost none of their deadliness. We now have vaccines against them and, in the case of smallpox, the vaccination campaign succeeded in eradicating the virus. 
But for the unvaccinated, these viruses remain as dangerous as ever. Robert May, who became one of the most influential mathematicians of his time, developed an alternative model of virus evolution. He postulated, and also proved epidemiologically, that neither the danger of a pathogen to its host need decrease, nor the ease with which the virus jumps from one victim to the next. He found that the optimal level of infectivity and lethality for a pathogen is determined by many different factors. One of them is the time lag between infection and the expression of disease symptoms, and this plays an important role in SARS-CoV-2. On average, it takes five days from infection to the first symptoms manifesting themselves. Many younger people do not even realize they are infected, and the long interval between infection and death means that the virus has plenty of time to replicate and move on to other hosts. The asymptomatic infection experienced by many people is the virus's recipe for success. That is why the measures we propose for our premium clients in our COVID-19 immunization program aim precisely at using this interval for the earliest possible intervention and, even in the absence of symptoms, we recommend that oximeter readings are taken on a daily basis. In simple mathematical terms, if the R number, reproduction rate, of the previous variant has been brought down to 0.7, for example by the imposition of lockdown, While the R number for the new variant, say B.1.1.7, is 1.1 under the same restrictions, this will inevitably cause it to edge the other variant out. In consequence, the existing pandemic measures no longer work as effectively as they did before, and the number of new infections no longer decreases at the same rate. What is happening here is that the mutations change the virus in such a way that the antibodies built up by vaccine or previous infection lose their efficacy. Repeat infections have been registered not only in Brazil and the USA, but also in Germany, where one particular patient died as the result of reinfection on the second occasion with the B.1.1.7 variant. This confirms that antibodies acquired from vaccination or from an earlier infection are less effective against the mutants that are beginning to emerge. Even more worrying, they may be counterproductive and make a second infection more dangerous. In the case of the German patient mentioned above, it cannot be ruled out that the antibodies from the initial infection exacerbated the course of the second infection, as can happen with dengue fever. See Keynote 12, March 2020. We think that a similar reaction may occur as a result of antibodies from a vaccine that does not work very well. So, at this point, we would reiterate our assertion that it is better to have no vaccine rather than a bad vaccine. We can see that vaccination campaigns are now well underway all around the world, and that members of the public who have received both their two doses continue to be reinfected, especially in old people's homes, within a very short time. In the majority of cases, these lead to mild courses of disease. However, this may be because we only have a limited opportunity to observe the progression so far. However, one question has been clearly answered. Even after receiving the jab, the vaccinated person can become infected and develop symptoms over and over again. Unfortunately, all of the currently available approved vaccines have this problem, but it is especially pronounced with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Its approval has been restricted or even paused, not only in Europe, but also in South Africa and elsewhere. No approval has yet been granted in the USA. As we have previously reported, AstraZeneca is working on the next-generation vaccine, but it will not be available before autumn. The current state of play is that AstraZeneca has a very low efficacy against the South African mutants, but this caveat applies more or less to all currently available vaccines. 
Even the Novavax and Johnson & Johnson, which are pending approval, have already reported lower efficacy in clinical phase 3, and according to the latest information we have at our disposal, they are skipping this step to work towards the next generation, which should be out in the autumn. In connection with the vaccination rollout, there have been a number of fatalities that have not been fully investigated in several countries around the world, including Norway, Germany, Belgium, California and Brazil. So far, there has been no systematic follow-up on these deaths, which occurred shortly after administration of a vaccine. Because most of the deceased were individuals with underlying conditions, no clear conclusions can be drawn. We strongly argue that any death occurring shortly after vaccination should be subject to a systematic autopsy in order to find out more about the causality. For clients who have been advised by us to get themselves vaccinated and have received both doses at the specified interval, there will definitely need to be a booster jab in the summer. Indeed, if the mutants continue to develop at the current pace, a booster may even be necessary before then. As we mentioned in keynote number 61, the question is whether to get a booster with the same, updated vaccine, or whether it might be possible to obtain the next-generation formulation from the same manufacturer. The jury is out on this one. The team at Moderna are currently addressing this issue by means of a so-called neutralization study. In keynote number 61, we also wrote about the problems encountered by Regeneron and Eli Lilly with their antibody therapies. Before an individual submits to an antibody therapy, gene sequencing must be performed to see which gene variant is present. If it turns out to be one of the recent mutants, we expressly warn against the use of antibody therapy until it can be established with certainty that the outcome will not be counterproductive. Scientists at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and the University of Seattle have done some very interesting research in this regard. They investigated the effects of possible mutations and published them in Science magazine. They tried to change the receptor binding site of the virus, first in a computer simulation and subsequently also with artificially produced viruses, in such a way that antibodies became ineffective. The resultant immune escape mutations, which we've already reported on in previous keynotes, cause people to lose their immune status. In their research, the Seattle team aimed to find out how natural evolution might change SARS-CoV-2. They checked a total of 2,034 possible mutations and found several where antibodies became ineffective. This means that the virus can, in principle, escape the body's natural immune response as well as evading the protection given by vaccines. The scientists were then able to detect some of these escape mutants in a human subject, a 45-year-old COVID-19 patient who had been infected with the virus for a particularly long time due to a chronic immune deficiency. In the long-drawn-out battle with the body's defences, four escape mutations had apparently formed that protected the virus from elimination. And this is indeed what has happened. The K417N mutation carries both the South African B.1.351 variant and the Y453F mutation, which led to the culling of almost all minks in Denmark. You can read about this in keynote number 50. This is also the background to the failure of the AstraZeneca vaccine against B.1.351. A new P.1 variant has been mooted as the cause of the powerful second wave that has engulfed the Brazilian city of Manaus. The politicians have acknowledged the changed circumstances, as has Anthony Fauci, who, only three weeks ago, was holding out the prospect of the pandemic being over in the USA sometime during summer, with herd immunity having been established. 
Within the past couple of days, however, he has conceded that the mutant forms are reducing the effectiveness of the vaccines. As to whether vaccination is the correct course of action to take at the moment, the following factors have to be weighed up. On the one hand, the threat from the mutants is an argument in favor of vaccination at the present time. Yet, on the other hand, the impaired efficacy is an argument against. For this reason, we will continue to clarify individually with each of our premium clients which vaccine we recommend. For the next few days, if there is no immediate danger posed by increased risk factors, we will continue to wait and see how things develop. We will make this assessment for each individual premium client on a rolling basis and will keep you informed accordingly.